Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let's pray once more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for this time we've had together this morning to worship through song. And as we turn now to this time of the worship service where we sit under your preached word, Father, help us to be shaped by your word. Realizing, as you say, it is like fire. And like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. Father, you know the, the areas of our hearts that are stony and that need to be broken up by your word. And we ask that you would do that this morning. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, your Son, our Savior. And realizing that this word tells us, it, it proclaims to us, it declares and heralds to us that we can have life in your Son. We can be forgiven of our sin and be filled and sealed by your Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we turn now to your word, may we rejoice in our hearts at what you have spoken to us. And may we not walk away changed, uh, not walk away unchanged by your word, but help us, Father, to delight in how your spirit will change us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Well, turn with me in your copy of God's word to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're in a series has us walking through the book of Acts this summer. 
If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've had a front row seat to the action and intrigue of this book. If this is your first Sunday, we want to welcome you. But one thing that you will see along with the rest of us today is the work of the Spirit throughout each chapter in Luke's account of the early church. Uh, This account that we know of is Acts. Just as Jesus promised, the Spirit has come and His activity is unavoidable and unmistakable. And as we go through chapter 6 this morning, I want you to watch for three things. Number one, a complaint that is answered with a Spirit-enacted solution. Number two, a call to service that results in spirit-enabled growth. And lastly, a conspiracy that is confronted with spirit-empowered resolve. Those are our three points this morning. A complaint that is answered with spirit-enacted solution. A call to service results in spirit-enabled growth. And a conspiracy is confronted by spirit-empowered resolve. So look again at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So this is the, the fifth mention of the growth of the church in the first six chapters of Acts. Acts 2.41, Acts 2.47, Acts 4.4, and Acts 5.14, and here in Acts 6.1, all tell us that people were being saved, disciples were being made, and the result was the church was experiencing explosive growth. Now with any growth, there will be growing pains. Our son Miller is uh, 17 years old. He's six feet, six inches tall. And uh, so over the last few years, he's experienced explosive growth. Um, It always makes me laugh at how things happen, change comes, and and there can be growing pains, and we scratch our heads wondering what could be going on here, right? Uh, This was the same with Miller. Uh, He would come to us, Mom, Dad, my legs hurt. My knees hurt, and we would scratch our heads thinking, what could be the problem? And as he would shoot up and up and up and up, we finally realized what was causing his hurting legs and his hurting knees, right? It was the growing pains. And the church was no exception. There was rapid growth, so we should expect growing pains. And Luke is documenting in verses 1 to 4 exactly what we'd expect to see in a church that is expanding. So let me give just a quick explanation for what's happening in verse 1 if these terms seem a little unfamiliar. Luke mentions two groups in verse 1, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Both groups share the same heritage in that both are Jewish. Culturally, however, they were very different people. The Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews They lived outside of Israel. They they were a part of what you will hear referred to as the diaspora, or or sometimes the dispersion. The diaspora was made up of Jews who had been forced out of Israel due to exile, or maybe they'd gone voluntarily for other various reasons. Many of these Jews found themselves living in a culture very different from their Hebraic roots. 
they became immersed in their culture, and, and for many of them, that, that meant speaking the language of the people they lived amongst. And for much of the known world, the, the language was Greek. There are several mentions of the diaspora in the New Testament. In, in John chapter 7, after Jesus tells a crowd that he will only be with him a little longer before he returns to the Father, the, the crowd questions what Jesus meant. Verse 35 says, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You see, while some Greek-speaking Jews moved back to Israel as, as these Hellenistic Jewish widows had, some remained where they had been dispersed, or as the NIV will say, scattered to. James addresses his letter to these Christians. He, he begins his letter by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Peter does the same thing. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, now what I'm about to say is not a main point, but in, I think an important observation. It would be easy for us to assume that the Hebraic Jews were overlooking the Hellenistic widows because they had it in for these Hellenistic Jews, or, or that there was some sort of racism or, or cultural elitism at play here. We could quickly come to the conclusion that the Hebraic Jews looked down upon the Hellenistic Jews. Some scholars actually suggest this. But I want to suggest Coming to that conclusion, based on the phrase, their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, would be to misread what was happening here. How do we know? Because of verse 5, the proposal, which we'll hear more about in just a few minutes, pleased the whole group. This particular problem in the church at Jerusalem wasn't so much a sin issue as it was an organizational issue. The distinction between these two groups is important because it underscores the spirit-enacted solution that the apostles would arrive at, and it shows that Jesus' command to be his witnesses to those outside of Jerusalem was beginning. We heard about this back in Acts 1.8. Not only was this the message for Hebraic Jews who spoke Aramaic, it was for the Hellenistic Jews who spoke Greek. And as the book of Acts continues, we'll see that not only is this message of the gospel for Jews, whether Hellenistic or Hebraic, it was for Gentiles. After all, Jesus' command for the apostles was to take this message to the ends of the earth. So the problem at hand in Acts 6.1 is that the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of of food. And again, I want to suggest this particular issue was not due to a sin problem, but rather an administrative problem. And we can arrive at this conclusion because of the way that the apostles deal with the problem. They don't enact church discipline, as you would expect if this was a sin issue. They give us what I believe is the first example of church administration. While in some places in Scripture the apostles will give instructions for how to handle matters in the church, 
here we see the apostles actually handling a matter in the church. So the apostles, they come up with a solution that will address the complaint. But before we look at that, notice what their guiding principle was for solving the problem. Look again at verse 2. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. The apostles understood that faithful ministry to the church included meeting the physical needs of the people, but it also included meeting the spiritual needs of the people. Notice the apostles don't say, listen, Hellenistic Jewish widows, you will be just fine without a meal. Tough it out, right? You're, you're going to be just fine. Ignore the hunger pains and feast instead on the Word of God. They don't say that. What do they do? They see that meeting the physical needs of these widows is important. And they're not going to overlook that. But they're certainly not going to neg- neglect the ministry of the Word of God. As attention increases to to what many in our day refer to as social justice, there is simultaneously a a decrease in the attention to the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. And this works its way out in churches when they neglect the ministry of the Word of God and only focus on meeting the physical needs of people. The apostles, they realized that this was not right, and we must continue to realize that as well. For the apostles to say it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables, you realize someone in this congregation, some, some wisecracker came up and said, you know what, I think the perfect group to handle this need would be the apostles. After all, they're the professionals, they're the the leaders, they're the men up front. Therefore, they are the best way to handle this problem. But to suggest the apostles should be the ones waiting tables, to suggest that could reveal a lack of understanding of the importance and primacy of the ministry of the Word of God. Without the ministry of the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, the church would not be growing as it has been up until this point. The text doesn't say that the church is experiencing explosive growth because they have a phenomenal food pantry or an incredible soup ministry. Belief always supersedes benevolence, and the reason the church was meeting physical needs was because the hearts were being changed by the gospel. Up to this point in Acts, there are two mentions of incredible generosity and benevolence being experienced among the church. First in Acts 2, 42 to 47, and then in Acts 4, 32 to 37. And in both examples, the ministry of the Word of God and a resulting belief of the people preceded the benevolence of the people who had plenty for the people who had need. The ministry of the Word of God, it gives us justification for why we attend to the physical needs of others. To only meet the physical needs robs people of the true sustenance that they crave. Realize the apostles were not being lazy. I know that's the first thing that comes to our mind. Well, they just really didn't want to get their hands dirty, right? 
They weren't trying to get out from doing physical labor. No, their labor was spiritual. And the most important contribution they could make to the church was to not neglect the ministry of the Word of God. This brings us to their solution. Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This complaint that had the potential of creating a, a huge divide amongst these believers and perhaps even splitting the church, it was solved by the apostles' simple but spirit-enacted solution. Some scholars see this uh, as the establishment of the biblical office of deacon. Others believe that that would happen after Paul lays out the biblical qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Either way, what's important to note here, even though this was a simple solution, the instructions given by the apostles were specific. The instructions were to choose seven men who were known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Look how specific these instructions are. Seven men from among you. Right? The, the job was not to be outsourced to the broader unbelieving community. The men had to be from among the believers and an active part of the believing community. They had to be known as being full of the Spirit and wisdom. Some might wonder, why such a high standard for someone who would be serving tables? But the priority for this will be seen in verses 5 to 7. What's important to understand is that the apostles, by the Spirit of God, knew better than to put someone in this role who wasn't growing in their faith. If they were going to serve in the power of God, they had to be walking after Jesus by the power of God. Well, the last thing to notice about these simple yet specific instructions is how seriously the apostles understood the physical need of these Hellenistic Jewish believing widows to be. Look again at the end of verse 3. We will turn this responsibility over to them. The apostles, they understood they were responsible for the care, both spiritual and physical, of the believers in the church. And this custody of this incredibly important task would be transferred to these seven men, and they, being full of the Spirit and wisdom, would serve the widows who were in need. And having carefully placed this responsibility in capable hands, the apostles could give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This solution was not devised by man, but was enacted by the Spirit of God. And we know this because a call to service results in Spirit-enabled growth. This is our second point. A call to service results in Spirit-enabled growth. Look at verse 5. This proposal, it pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. I suggested earlier the reason the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being overlooked was simply because of the language barrier between the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speakers. I gave two reasons, right? The apostles' solution was administrative, not disciplinary. And the proposal pleased the whole group. 
that in, in itself doesn't minimize the magnitude of the situation. It, it magnifies the miracle of the Spirit's intervention. When has a church business meeting covering a decision of this magnitude ever resulted in the whole group being pleased? I'm not saying that peaceful church business meetings are not possible or even rare. By God's grace, we experienced one just last week. But think about the potential for this thing in Jerusalem to have gone sideways. You have a relatively new and young church. You have a disenfranchised group of helpless widows. You have two cultures with two separate languages, and you have the potential for hurt feelings. You have the likelihood that something awful could happen here. But by the Spirit of God's leading, the apostles were able to arrive at a simple and effective solution that pleased the whole group. I can't read this without thinking about how it applies to Trinity. Let me share with you two ways. First, church, if you are regularly praying, daily praying for your pastoral staff, the elders and deacons, thank you. We desperately need your prayers, and we are grateful that you would consider praying for us on a daily basis. If you're not daily praying for your pastoral staff, the elders and deacons, would you please consider doing that? Again, we, we cherish your prayers. We need your prayers. We ask that you would pray, above all, that we would hold to the importance and primacy of not neglecting the ministry of the Word of God. That everything we do, every decision that we would make, would take into account how it affects and impacts this church's ministry of the Word of God. Secondly, pray for unity amongst our leadership. Pray that the, the Lord would be at work in the heart of each one of us, whether on the pastoral staff, an elder, or a deacon. We desperately need the intervention of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives, but also as we come together to make decisions that affect the body of this church. So the group heeds the instructions of the apostles, and seven men are chosen. These are all Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews that were chosen. You'll even notice Nicolaus was a convert to Judaism. It's interesting that, that Stephen and Philip are the only ones of the seven that will be mentioned beyond chapter 6. And don't miss how Luke describes Stephen. This description shows that the group made their selections based off of the criteria that apostles had given them. It also is a foreshadowing of what's to come next in chapter 6, but also in chapter 7. So what does come next reveals why we give so much attention to these matters in church life. Look at verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. You know, the group, they, they could have made their selections, they could have given the men their aprons and, and put them to work. But before they did that, look at what they did. They presented the men to the apostles. Having been presented to the apostles, the, the apostles could have made sure that their aprons were cinched tightly and said, get to work. But they didn't do that. What did they do? They prayed for these seven men and laid their hands on them. And this shows us the apostles didn't see this as some throwaway ministry or some placeholder to keep these seven men busy and feeling useful. No, this was work that was critical to the overall ministry of the church. 
without the service of these seven men, the ministry of the Word of God could be in jeopardy as it would have to be neglected in order to not neglect the widows. When you think about the service of those in the church, specifically the elders and deacons, I think of people like Joe Kaysen, who heads up our First Impressions ministry. And if Joe did not do what he does, guess who that would fall to? Right, Your, your pastoral staff. And to do what he does would take time away from our preparation and it would lead to the neglect of the ministry of the Word of God. But praise be to God for Joe and the rest of the deacons who head up incredibly important ministries in this church. And our elders as well who oversee things that allow Pastor Jeff and I to devote time to the ministry of the Word of God. We are so thankful for our elders and our deacons. You know, this moment in the life of the church was so important that the apostles laid their hands on these men and commissioned them for their service. Whenever we install new elders or deacons, we do something very similar to what happened here in Acts 6. We usually bring the elders and deacons before you, the congregation. We lay our hands on them and pray for them. And these prayers are always offered in hope as we are asking the Lord for the same thing that happened in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. How you view the problem in verse 1, the solution offered in verses 2 and 4, and the compliance of the church in verses 5 and 6 will determine your response to verse 7. So if we see the apostles answer to the problem as being a man-centered attempt to quiet some complainers, then reading verse 7 results in amazement and awe. However, if we understand the apostles' response was a spirit-enacted solution, you read verse 7 having expected nothing less. Because the apostles were sensitive to the Spirit of God and knew the right answer to the problem, couldn't be the neglect of the ministry of the Word of God. When everyone did their part in the church as the Spirit had directed, the Word of God spread. Luke is careful to include that this growth was a direct result of the Spirit-enacted solution to the problem in the obedient implementation by the apostles and the church. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. This rapid growth was not random or accidental. This spirit-enabled growth was a direct result of the refusal of the apostles to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. The expansion of this spirit-enabled growth was so far-reaching that it even reached into the existing religious structures. It's estimated the number of priests in Israel at this time was well into the thousands. These priests, mentioned here in verse 7, these priests would hold regular jobs throughout the year and, and say, serve at the temple on a limited basis. They were even commissioned to uh, do ministry in their hometowns. These priests were not of the higher stratosphere of the priesthood that we see when reading through the Gospels, and many of them could relate more to the poor widows than the high priest and the chief priest. These priests, mentioned in verse 7, were, were moved by the care that the apostles had arranged for. 
But that's not the only thing that got their attention. They became obedient to the faith because of the ministry of the Word of God. Both at the beginning and end of his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks of the importance of obedience of faith. Obedience of faith or obedience to the faith is not merely speaking of conversion, but to complete allegiance to Jesus. The power of the gospel of Jesus was so expansive that it was reaching into the religious establishment and claiming those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. The events of Acts 6, they can only be explained by the work of the Spirit of God. And this should not come as a surprise because this is the fulfillment of the promise Jesus made to the apostles back in Acts chapter 1. There are many reactions that we should experience when considering the work of God, but surprise should never be one of them. God keeping his promises should not surprise us. So far, we've seen a spirit-enacted solution and spirit-enabled growth. And the last thing that we'll see in Acts chapter 6 is what happens when a conspiracy is confronted by spirit-empowered resolve. This is our final point. A conspiracy is confronted by spirit-empowered resolve. Look at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Verses 8 to 15 of chapter 6 seem like they are unrelated to verses 1 to 7, but notice the common link. Stephen, who had been named to serve widows, is now being used of God as an evangelist. The book of Acts is full of ups and downs, and chapter 6 is no different. The news could not have been any better in verses 7 and 8 when Stephen was caring for widows. Then trial and tribulation strike again as a result from him preaching the gospel. However, this is all part of God's plan. It's how the church grows. The Bible tells us that trial and tribulation are how we grow. One of the things that's so striking to me about the end of chapter 6 is how we can't mistake what happens for coincidence. And this, too, is the link. That's usually how we think in life. That's usually the conclusion that we arrive at. It's so easy for us to chalk seemingly random occurrence up to coincidence, but, but Luke won't let us do that in Acts 6. There's, there's no verse 8 in Acts if there's not first verse 5. Stephen is first mentioned as a seemingly low-level table server in verse 5, but look at him in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Who's Stephen? Well, he's that guy that God ordained to meet the needs of widows. Yeah, that's Stephen, right? Luke told us in verse 5, Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and that should have gotten our attention. 
this Stephen is really going places, but it's not because of his own strength and skills. This Stephen is a Word of God-believing, Christ-exalting, Spirit-filled man of God who is on a mission to make Christ known. Notice where the opposition to Stephen comes from in verse 8. It's his own people. At least it's the people he would have lined with prior to being saved. These were Hellenistic Jews, unconverted, who did not like the fact that Stephen was now speaking out as a witness for Jesus. Continuing his observation that Stephen is a man filled with the Spirit, Luke points out that in the face of opposition, the troublemakers were no match for the wisdom the Spirit gave Stephen. So what happens when someone can't win a debate? Rather than relying on merit, they resort to lies or twisting the truth. Right? And we see that in verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, which was the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. The lies or distortion of the truth told by those opposing Stephen reveals they were twisting his presentation of the gospel. Stephen was being accused of saying the very same thing Jesus was accused of, being, of saying in the gospels. True, Jesus had said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But he was speaking of his death and resurrection. True, Jesus had stood before crowds and shared how he was the fulfillment of the law, but he was in no way hinting that he had come to abolish the law. What was the response of the crowds? Often it was disbelief, disgust, or as we see in Jesus' trial, hatred. Whether it was the the, the people in Jesus' time, or the people who were accusing Stephen, or people that you and I know today, Jesus stands before them all as the answer to their greatest longing, to their greatest need of forgiveness from their sin. And rather than fall on their knees in repentance, what do they do when faced with the gospel? Well, they killed Jesus and they seized Stephen. The same is true in our day. When we share the gospel, we're often met with blank stares at the very least. And in parts of the world, the response is the same as it was for Jesus and Stephen. But as we'll see next week, our faithfulness to share the gospel does not depend on people's responses to it. We are called to share the gospel. Listen to how Paul lays out the gospel in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
Paul wrote this to Christians who were reflecting. He, he was asking them, calling them to reflect on their being saved by Jesus. Stephen could read Titus 3, 4-7 through 7 and say, yes, that's what happened to me. I was saved by Jesus. I was filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped for service and to stand in opposition to those who would say that they hate the gospel of Jesus. Have you experienced the rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit? Can you, along with Stephen, say that this has happened in your life? That Jesus has changed you? And that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Upon hearing Stephen's proclamation of the good news that Jesus saves, the right response from those who opposed him would have been repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus alone. That's the right response for anyone who's presented with the news that Jesus saves us from our sin. Instead, they seized this man who was filled with grace and with the Holy Spirit and who was full of God's grace and power. Because our faithfulness to share the gospel doesn't depend on people's responses to it, our resilience and resolve has to come from the empowerment of the Spirit, not from something that we can generate ourselves. Even though Stephen was being accused of saying things he had not said, even though he had been seized and arrested unjustly, he was not phased. His resolve was steadfast because he was empowered by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This description of Stephen, it reminds us of the, of the description of Moses after he spent time with God on the mountain. It also reminds us of Jesus' face following his transfiguration on the mountain. While Stephen's trial was literally on a mountain, he was figuratively in a valley. It appeared as though he was standing there all alone before his accusers, but notice what they saw. Luke says they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Ecclesiastes 8.1 says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. We know from Luke's account that the last thing we were to believe is that Stephen's appearance was due to his wisdom, right? That's not what made his face appear as it were an angel's. The reason that he could stand as a servant who had been seized was because he had been filled with the Spirit of God. He had resolved that only the Spirit of God could give him. What started out as an instance of conflict in the church that resulted in a, a Spirit-enacted solution has led to Spirit-enabled growth of the church and now to this Spirit-empowered resolve in response to a conspiracy. Luke helps us see that the church didn't grow in a vacuum. It happened in the midst of trial and tribulation. It happened in the midst of there being issues within the church, like Hellenistic Jewish widows being overlooked, right? 
the apostles being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, listening to God, not wanting to neglect the ministry of the Word of God, coming up with a solution that pleased everyone. It also happened through people like Stephen who were filled with the Spirit of God, having their words twisted and being seized and brought before the Sanhedrin, falsely accused. This is how the church grew. This is how the Spirit worked. This is how the Lord added people to the number day by day. And folks, it's the same way today, right? We should expect growing pains in the church. We should expect that trial and tribulation will come, and we should know that when it does, it is the Word of God working in us to produce transformation in the lives of others that will see us through those difficult times. We should expect difficulty. But as we are filled with the Spirit of God, we should also know that God has made provision for us and that the church will grow. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in knowing that your word does not return void, and therefore the ministry of your word is vital to the growth of the church. Father, may we not neglect that ministry, but instead as we see to it that your word is preached, may we also have hearts that are changed, that propel us out into the community so that we might meet the needs of those in our community. May we always be mindful of the needs amongst our people here in this church. Father, help us to minister well. Help each and every one of us here in this congregation, even though they may not be a part of the pastoral staff, an elder or a deacon. Father, help us to all take up this ministry that's been given to us Help us to care for those around us. And may that care be seen clearly as having come from the ministry of your word. Father, we thank you for how you continue to change lives. We thank you for your love and care for us most clearly seen in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We thank you that Prior to his going to the cross, he shared a meal with his disciples. And he called on them to remember him regularly. And Father, we do this morning gather around this table to remember our Lord Jesus. So Father, as we consider what put him on the cross, may we also consider the joy that is to be ours because of Jesus' love for his people. And may we, as we gather around this table, celebrate and rejoice over what has been accomplished for us by way of the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.